0: Hello listeners, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Am Hall talks with Genevieve LeBaron, the new professor and director of the School of Public Policy at Simon Fraser University, and the principal investigator of Restructure Lab. Today, Am and Genevieve discussed forced labor, its market incentives, and the effects of COVID on the global supply chain, as well as her new role in SFU's School of Public Policy. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello,
1: welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We're really excited to have Genevieve LeBaron with us today. Welcome, Genevieve
2: Thank you, Am. It's great
1: to be here. Yeah, Genevieve, maybe we can uh, start with you introducing yourself a little bit.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, my name's Genevieve LeBaron, as you said. I'm a professor of political science by training. And I've recently joined Simon Fraser University as the director of the School of Public Policy in the Vancouver campus and a professor of public policy. I'm also the principal investigator of a lab called Restructure Lab, which is shared between SFU, Yale, Stanford Universities, and the University of Michigan School of Law.
1: Shinnu, really excited. I know uh, we've had a chance to speak uh, before, but really exciting that you're uh, coming back to Vancouver, a city that you grew up in uh, to work here at the School of public policy as the director. I'm wondering if we can begin with you just talking about your own research focus and area. you've been studying on business and governance of forced labor, uh, modern slavery and human trafficking in global supply chains. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to uh, how you found yourself um, studying in this area in particular and kind of the threads of your research currently. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for the
2: warm welcome back. It's great to be home in Vancouver. Uh, great to be back at SFU. Yes, yeah, so my research is focused on forced labor, human trafficking, and slavery in global supply chains, as you said. How did I get into it? It's a, it's a, it's a funny story. Well, as funny as you know, it can be, I guess, looking at a subject like this. I, I started out researching this as a, an undergraduate at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, And I didn't mean to really. I was doing political economy for my degree, looking broadly at questions around globalization and how we got where we are now in kind of the global economy terms. And there was at the time a pretty major issue in the date, kind of in the areas surrounding where our college was based. And that was that there was a trend of companies closing down production facilities and relocating inside of prisons. And of course, prison labor under the U.S. Constitution is a form of of slavery. There's a loophole in the 13th Amendment that allows slavery where people have been convicted of crimes. And so prison labor is this form of unfree or forced labor within the U.S. And so that was the first thing that I looked at. And it was really because it was a major issue in the society in which I was living from many different perspectives, from the perspective of labor unions who are concerned that, you know, unionized jobs were getting cut and that that work was being relocated into prisons. It was interesting to me, you know, why was the government doing this? Like why were they giving their, their prison labor force to large companies? And it was a sort of strategy to uh, offer an alternative to offshoring that would keep some production located within the state. So that was very interesting to me. And then also the ways in which companies at the time were claiming that this was part of their um, sort of social responsibility and rehabilitation mission to employ prison laborers. And so that was my first interest in this area. Uh, I then went on to do my master's and my PhD at York University in Toronto. And there I was confronted uh, with the reality that you know i i sort of thought that this was a key part of capitalism this was a key part of how the economy was functioning clearly because it was right you know right next to my college as i was doing my undergraduate studies and when i got to york i i was surprised to realize that for much of the field of political science and political economy uh, more broadly There's a theory that uh, capitalism has no use for forms of forced labor, that, you know, the kind of economy that we live in today, these forms of forced labor and forms of slavery will slowly fade away as, you know, the capitalist market comes in and proliferates and carries with it a preference for free wage labor. And that goes back to classic political economists like Adam Smith. And others, and I was surprised and worried about how prevalent that view was within uh, the department where I was studying, but also sort of the literature more broadly. That there was this argument that people cared deeply about that that forced labor and and capitalism were incompatible in some way. And to me, that seemed factually incorrect, and it seemed theoretically very dangerous because, of course, what it does is it cuts out the labor of the most sort of racialized, dispossessed people in the economy who have little choice but to engage in certain forms of very dangerous, uh, underpaid, often exploitative and sometimes forced forms of labor. And so for me, it was a really problematic sort of way of looking at at that, that problem and the global economy. And of trying to create a a sort of vision and theory of capitalism that was highly sanitized and and just factually wrong. Um, And so I became interested in it that way. I started to do large studies of forced labor in global supply chains after I did my Ph.D., where I looked at prison labor, the history of prison labor and U.S. capitalism, why different companies used it, with what consequences for, for prisoners and for um, local economies and labor markets more broadly. Uh, and then I turned in my postdoc at UBC to looking more globally at global supply chains and some of the dynamics there. And I can say more about my current work on that, if you know where, where I've gone since the postdoc, if that's useful. But in a nutshell, that's how it all began.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, and yeah, I wonder if you could speak to some of the studies that you were involved in because it's it's complex and it's global and obviously has localized effects as well. But in terms of the the methods and approach that you take in your in your research, that would be fascinating to hear about.
2: I've tried to take an approach that centers workers and enables workers to really narrate and explain their own conditions and and their own experiences of labor in supply chains so the first study that I, I did was a, a study of tea and cocoa supply chains focused on the business of forced labor so there I was interested you know there's a lot of interest in the big brand companies at the top of supply chains when it comes to labor standards but there's much less understanding of the businesses that actually, use forced labor. And I was interested in trying to understand the patterns around those businesses. So are they businesses of a certain size? Are they businesses that are producing primarily for export or domestic consumption? How do things like fair trade certification or Rainforest Alliance certification shape whether or not a business has kind of a demand for forced labor? And my interest there was in you know, whether forced labor is really a hidden crime, we hear that a lot in the media, we hear that a lot in, um, in, in kind of policy circles. And my hunch, based on some previous research I'd done with my colleague Andrew Crane and, uh, and Laya Behbahani and others, was that actually it would be possible to pinpoint which types of businesses use forced labor and why. And so I set out to study this and I did it by doing a comparative analysis of cocoa and tea supply chains and the, the nature and prevalence of forced labor within different types of businesses at the base of those chains. I did so by starting out at the base of the supply chain. Our team interviewed about 1,200 workers uh, and did a survey that looked at everything from wages to why workers were unable to leave those situations or or if they wish to, you know, how they might do that, that sort of thing. And we, we then worked our way up the supply chain, interviewing domestic business actors, interviewing big global corporate business actors, interviewing policymakers of different varieties, ethical certification firms and others to arrive at, at an understanding of how forced labor manifested in these chains and the business dynamics that surround it. And we found some interesting things, for instance, that when it came to ethical certification, whether or not a tea plantation had ethical certification made no difference in the prevalence and severity of forced labor that was found on, on those work sites, which of course is deeply troubling given that we you know, we buy these products expecting that they're made uh, without forced labor and without child labor and with, with higher labor standards. So that was the first large study that I did. I've done uh, a few other studies since then. I've worked with colleagues in the business school, Vivek Sundararajan and Andrew Crane, Laura Spence, Michael Bloomfield and others to do a study of South India garment industry and garment workers, garment supply chains. Most recently in the pandemic, uh, I worked with colleagues to do a study that looked at the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on patterns of forced labor in four countries, uh, looking at the garment supply chain again, and really to see how the different business responses to the COVID-19 pandemic impacted upon the patterns of forced labor that we see in those supply chains. And in that one, we also interviewed, I think, about 1,200 workers, again, and both kind of long-form, more ethnographic style of interviews, as well as quantitative surveys. And so that's the general approach that I take in, in my research. It's, it's worker-led. It involves interviewing workers away from businesses with ethics and severe consequences that workers could face for participating in research like this, uh, really front of mind and the kind of key consideration being ensuring that we do no harm in, in the research process. And then also work with labor organizations in terms of dealing with some of the problems that arise as and when workers would like to see that redressed.
1: Yeah. So I'd imagine in terms of the implications of your research, it would have huge policy implications, uh, national and regional government levels, but also international and probably also companies themselves uh, that may be uh, contractually distant from it. And also the kind of jurisdictional opportunism that companies take in exploiting workers in this type of way. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how at both national and international levels what the policy implications have been related to the research that you're doing or you're seeing the policy gaps that perhaps exist at these levels that are being um, exploited by various actors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. As you say, a major part of my work has been policy focused. It's obviously a topic that there's very little data on. And so when there is data, and there's a huge uh, amount of public and policy interest in having evidence-based policy around this topic, it's something that I've really tried to prioritize. It's fraught terrain, (laughs) given the politics that surround it. Uh, And it's it's an interesting uh, journey to have worked with. Large companies to try to address uh, and, and support them in redesigning their business models to prevent and address forced labor, uh, as well as you know everyone from the UK Parliament to US Congress and others to to really strengthen the approaches they take to these problems. The the kind of the nutshell of it, I think, is that the current dominant approaches to dealing with forced labor in supply chains across most jurisdictions fail to take seriously the commercial dynamics that actually lead to business pressure to use those practices. So we see uh, a real emphasis in, for instance, what's called home state regulation, which has been passed by the EU, the UK, the US state of California and others And that type of legislation tries to uh, place new responsibilities onto companies that are headquartered in those jurisdictions to strengthen how they deal with forced labor and supply chains. And what we've seen in response to that is that companies say, oh, we're auditing, uh, we're certifying, we're doing, you know, these sort of philanthropic initiatives to try to employ, for instance, people who've been liberated from forced labor. And those may be well-intentioned. There are really good people working within companies who are trying to put those solutions forward. But the unfortunate reality is that when we look at the data, there's just almost no data to suggest that they actually work in terms of reducing forced labor on the ground. And the reason for that, I think, that my research points to is that those types of solutions do absolutely nothing to confront the business models that perpetually And consistently lead to forced labor. So that thing I was talking about earlier, where we can see patterns in terms of the types of firms that have demand for forced labor, how they use it in supply chains, why they use it in supply chains. And a lot of the time that has to do with price pressures that are placed on them. Further up the chain, Uh, it has to do with the large companies constantly trying to source goods well below the cost of production uh, to the point that it hardwires in the kind of inability to meet minimum labor standards and labor law. And so those commercial dynamics have not been tackled in policy, and they're definitely not tackled in more uh, corporate social responsibility type responses to these
1: problems. You've also been involved with something called the Restructure Restructure Lab. I'm wondering if you can speak about that a little bit.
2: Absolutely. So at the outset of the pandemic, my friends and colleagues, Jesse Brenner at Stanford and Lou DeBaca at Yale, who, you know, Lou had been President Obama's ambassador for human trafficking and, and modern slavery. And Jesse's a, an expert on forced labor, human trafficking and supply chains and kind of the international policy context and landscape there, the three of us have been researching these things and indeed practicing around these, these problems and trying to bolster policy for many years. We we got together and we we were chatting and we were all feeling that, you know, there was heavy demand at that, at that moment, at that kind of outside of the pandemic moment when it was already clear that this was going to be a new era for global supply chains that overnight, you know, the kind of ironclad norms of doing business that have been entrenched through the globalization era were just being broken overnight. So all of a sudden, you know, staple food products, which we've always been told have inelastic demand, prices can't rise to to deal with, you know, for instance, raising labor standards, suddenly prices were rising. Supply chain, fragility was laid bare as we suddenly had mass disruptions to global transport, the the nature of work was changing as flexible policies were emerging around working from home, factories were being shut down, everything was changing. And I think it was interesting that that kind of vaulted the topic of supply chains into the policy spotlight in a way that hadn't happened in the past, driven mostly by fears around the stability of supply. Like, could we get the mass we needed for the, the pandemic? Could we get the, the PPE equipment we needed? If not, why not? Like, what were the bottlenecks in these supply chains, etc.? as well as geopolitical concerns but all of a sudden you know there was this effort to regulate and and govern supply chains in a much more hands-on way than we'd seen in the past For instance, governments who were doing these company bailouts of of industry during the pandemic were putting strings attached that related to environmental and social dynamics in supply chains. And so federal bailout funding was being dependent upon certain environmental issues or, you know, banning tax havens or, or they were trying to kind of drive progressive policy and deal with these longstanding issues in supply chains by putting strings attached to the money they were giving companies. And, and we felt then that this was a moment, kind of a once in a lifetime moment where there was definitely going to be change in supply chains and in labor standards, and it could either move the needle towards solutions that were more positive for workers and that dealt with some of these longstanding challenges, or it could be very, very regressive. And so we, we were facing a lot of demand for, you know, what should we do next from kind of policy makers, companies. Worker organizations, how should we seize this moment? Uh, how, how can we use it to deal with these longstanding issues around forced labor? And so we decided to form this lab to, to really just collaborate and to, to try to lay out what we knew as researchers and what data was available within academic research to answer some of these pressing questions. And so our lab is a a joint research policy lab that brings practitioners together and it brings academics together who have done large studies of forced labor in supply chains, along with students from the various universities. And we collaborate to, to try to lay out what solutions to these problems look like using that research and evidence base. So we've written a series of six briefs over the pandemic that lay out, for instance, how commercial dynamics and sourcings need to change, how investment patterns need to change, how value should be distributed within supply chains, just really uh, taking the research we've done and and that's available in the field and then trying to translate it into accessible uh, solutions that people can can take up. And we've been excited to see a lot of interest in,
1: in that work. Mm-hmm. I found uh, in looking at some of the, the policy briefs, uh, Genevieve, I really appreciated the plain language that they are written as someone who's worked in government before seeing documents on the policy front and taking, and it clearly came out of rigorous research. And so it's amazing how easily and digestible, in a digestible way, they can be circulated. So it can have a kind of interface with policy actors. I'm wondering, in terms of the present trends that you're seeing out of the research related to to forced labor, what are some of the things that you're finding today and secondly, the trends you're you're seeing in terms of actors who are engaging in forced labor, where are the policy gaps they're they're functioning in.
2: Thanks, Sam. I mean that's kind of you to say about the work, and that was definitely the hope that it would be useful to non-academics, especially. What have we seen? So I think we're seeing <laughs> we're seeing both signs of excellent progress. And we're also seeing some really worrying signs. The good news first would be that we are seeing the conversation in policy circles, for instance, in the U.S., move towards looking at commercial drivers and commercial dynamics. And that's really the first time, you know, as somebody who's been working on these topics for Close to 15 years now it's the first time we're seeing i think a national government aside from brazil which used to have an amazing program on kind of the commercial business dynamics of forced labor take a take a stance on this and look seriously at what types of policy instruments can help to address that and incentivize better business practice and so we're seeing for instance trade law and trade mechanisms be used in a way that they have not in the past, we're seeing import bands of goods that are made with forced labor so that they, you know, just can't be sold in the market anymore. And the idea behind these is to price, you know, sort of price forced labor out of the market by making it expensive and commercially not viable to, to produce products in that way. So I think that, that you know there, it's complicated. There's some perverse effects of that. For instance, that we've seen as the U.S. has ramped up its bans of forced labor made goods, we've actually seen an increase in the number of forced labor made goods that come to Canada because those boats <laughs> end up coming into our market and selling goods here where we don't have you know some of those bans in place, though I, I know we're working on it. And so, you know, it's an interesting trend. I think it's hopeful that there's a recognition that commercial dynamics need to be confronted, but we're at the, the early stage of experimenting with policy that can do that. And there's a lot of refinement that needs to be done. I think on the worrying side, you know, the numbers that do exist, including the study that I mentioned that I did uh, with colleagues of the garment industry, show that there is a surge in forced labor happening through the pandemic. And also, we know that there are numbers, for instance, from the United Nations, that child labor is surging through the pandemic, and that this is reversing, you know, many years of progress on these issues. So, yeah, I suppose it's a it's a complicated picture, and COVID has meant, you know, a huge loss of livelihood uh, for a lot of people, a lot of suppliers going under, and and so we are seeing that. You know, there has been just huge transformation in supply chains that's leaving workers worse off in many parts of the world and in many sectors. I think you asked about the businesses that use forced labor. What are some of the trends there? Again, the trend is that at the outset of the pandemic, you know, there was this huge flux in supply chains, a lot of large businesses um, panicked and they sort of canceled orders and slashed and burned in their supply chains. And they've found it um, harder than they expected, I think, to rekindle those relationships and go back to how things were. Um, And then we're also seeing you know, large geopolitical transformation in supply chains at the moment, uh, where companies are trying to get out of certain jurisdictions, and into others in response to, to new regulation. And that is leaving, you know, some suppliers uh, very much worse off. And so, you know, the picture is, again, not a particularly rosy one for suppliers in the garment industry
1: or in, in other industries. So you have a very, very uh, busy research area of interest that you're continuing on, and you have your, your second hat as director of the School of Public Policy, which has brought you back to your hometown uh, of Vancouver. And you've had the opportunity to, to study uh, abroad, places like Evergreen and in the UK. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a preview into your sense of arrival back into the city and at this really unique School of uh, Public Policy where do you see the school going in the future in terms of its unique history here inside of SFU and also, you know, being based in, in Vancouver, how can the school be situated in a, in a unique context in terms of what it offers for public policy uh, graduate students and also the, the broader impact it can have in terms of its research area?
2: That's a great, great question, Em. I mean, you know, I'm only a few weeks into my job, so <laughs> no, no pressure. But I'll share a few, I'll share a few initial thoughts. Uh, I suppose, you know, the thing that drew me back here, as you say, I've been, I've been fortunate to spend, um, you know, some years in the UK where I had these amazing research grants and some time at Yale and some time in Geneva and in Paris and sort of all over, all over the place. And um, what drew me back to SFU, I actually worked here uh, during my postdoc. Um, I taught in the labor studies department. And I, I love the students that I worked with. I'm still in touch with many of them. It's been an amazing part of my career to support them and follow them as they've developed um, their work. And I found them to be some of the most hardworking students who offered, you know, they, they combined kind of rigorous, excellent academic skills with lived experience of various forms of diversity uh, that gave them really unique insights into uh, questions around public policy, labor markets, what solutions we should have to, to pressing social and economic problems. Um, and the thing that excited me most about public policy school is that it has one foot in, you know, rigorous, amazing academic research. We've got economists here, we've got public health scholars, we've got political scientists, they're working together to research and truly understand uh, problems that range from uh, drugs to um, housing, to climate change, to solutions to those problems, you know, really the full gamut of uh, of public policy challenges that are local to Vancouver, national to Canada, and and global. Um, And at the same time, they're, you know, they're placing a lot of emphasis and value on communicating the findings of their research in ways that support Uh, policy change and actual real world solutions to the problems that they're researching. And I think that's too unique of a thing. In some ways, in academia, it's not often that you have that. And it's not often that you have it at a place like SFU, where you truly have this um, uh, kind of university wide commitment to engagement, uh, and university wide commitment to knowledge mobilization and impact. Um, And so for me, that that is what, was so attractive about this school and what makes it so unique. Um, I think we're at a moment in time where public policy is seeing a resurgence where a lot of people are saying, whether it's because of climate change or because of the pandemic, or because they're just fed up with um, not being able to afford the basic necessities of life, like housing or food or um, transportation or whatever it is. uh, We're seeing, you know, these, increasingly loud demands for governments to get more involved in regulating the economy and in shaping the the rules of the game in which labor and business and migration and many other processes um, and, and dynamics occur. And so I think we're at a moment in time where you know we really need people who are well-trained in public policy analysis and who can act in the public interest uh, and, and meet this growing demand for innovative solutions to to economic and social problems um, within the city of Vancouver within Canada within the world and that's what our school does is it you know it trains people uh, both on the rigorous academic side and on the public and policy communication side um, to be able to act in in the public interest and so for me uh, I saw this as a home where, um, I had uh, like minded scholars who are also interested in both research and impact. Um, and also, um, you know, this amazing group of students who come in already with uh, amazing experience in the real world and in policy and want to spend a couple of years studying with us um, to learn how to be even more effective and even more impactful in the issues that matter most to them. Um, and so I'm really honored to, to be back and I'm looking forward to working with um, you know, yourself and all the folks at, at SFU who, um, who really make SFU stand out as a university in this, this area.
1: Well, uh, Genevieve, we're we're so lucky to um, have you here in, in Vancouver and at SFU, and uh, I, I know it's going to be an amazing um, opportunity to work with students. I've met many of the public policy students before, and they they do an amazing job and are continuing to do uh, amazing policy work at governments, uh, with governments and and nonprofit organizations uh, around the country. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd you'd like to add.
2: No, just that i i I mean I'm happy to hear that I agree with you Our students are fantastic and and it's an important time in in b c and in the world for public policy. I think we're seeing this trend of people who've been traditionally excluded from public policy making uh taking a a big seat at the table and driving things forward um and that's something that we're looking to um to support and to Um, to be able to
1: really contribute to from our school. Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar.
2: It's been my pleasure, and Thank you for having me.
0: Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Genevieve LeBaron. Head to the show notes to learn more about the resources mentioned in the episode. We release episodes every Tuesday, so make sure to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting app of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.